This is hell. And we are back, manufacturing dissent. Since 1996, this is hell when it comes to police abolition. As a past guest here on This Is Hell, Miriam Kaba has said, yes, we mean literally abolish the police. For a lot of people, the idea can be frightening, very scary, believing that abolition is about nothing but abolishing, nothing but erasing, and leaving nothing but a vacuum in its wake. But that's not all that abolitionism is. Abolition is as much the tearing down of a brutal and cruel system that is founded and grounded in slavery as it is about the reconstruction of a new system that is based on equality and radical democracy. In the case of the police, it's about ending policing as we know it and creating an alternative process for public safety and protection. One that actually keeps the public safe and protected. A new system that is not only about enforcing the law, but is also about actual justice. A system that offers no one impunity from the law, that holds nobody above the law, and applies true justice equally and democratically to all. And none of what I just said applies to how today's police go about their policing. Instead, they do a horrible job at stopping crime, let alone solving crimes that they already allowed to be committed. They hold municipal budgets hostage, constantly insisting on more resources that have further militarized the police. The police now act very much like gangs, even have gangs of their own, and are involved in criminal gang activities, and if the democratically elected leaders of their community stray from the policies and politics of local fraternal orders of police, then the police will refuse to protect and serve the public until their self-interest is satisfied. With that kind of political power and arsenal of weapons to aim at protesters demanding an end to policing, fascistic tendencies are becoming more and more visible as the police defend the powerful and wealthy who have profited from the inequalities imposed upon all of us by neoliberalism and the legacies of colonialism. And yes, slavery. We'll talk police abolition in a few when we have the return of Gio Maher, who is the author of A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make cops obsolete. Gio has previously taught at Vassar, San Quentin State Prison, and the Venezuelan School of Planning in Caracas, which oddly is my entire curriculum. My undergrad was Vassar, and then I got graduate school at San Quentin, and then I got my PhD at the Venezuelan School of Planning in Caracas. Okay, that's not true. Gio is the author of many other books, including We Created Chavez, which we discussed with Gio back in 2016. And you can find that interview at thisishell.com when you search on Gio's last name, Mar, M-A-H-E-R. Find out more about Gio at geomaher.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is... Jess Lipka, just the last time we did a show together, three weeks ago, at that time I think you were going to go hang out with a past guest on our show, someone who endorsed today's guest's book, Geo's book, Jordan Camp, uh, in a town where I used to live and still have many friends, Lansing, Michigan, and some people are very upset about my slamming of Lansing, Illinois, when we had that conversation three weeks ago, and you were... I think the last time I was talking to you, you were still teaching kids how to box down in Hyde Park. So, Jess, what the hell have you been up to? I did go to Lansing. How yeah. was it? It was good. It's it's. I didn't really get a sense. It was my first time there. I didn't get a sense for it. It's a weird town, though. Yes, yeah, a very weird yeah. town. I drove through Lansing, Illinois, too. And? I, I don't know. It's small. <laughs> very suburban? Yeah. Kind of pretty. 
Yeah. It was a pretty drive. Yeah. It's a really nice, except for the Gary part. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That gets so depressing sometimes. The reason Jess and I have not spoken, the reason you have not heard me streaming live or podcast or on air the last couple of weeks, as many of you may know, I went on my annual summer family vacation to Cottage on Lake, and a couple of things happened this year that are worth sharing, including my first ever attempt at legally buying recreational marijuana and how it went horribly horribly wrong, leading me to illegally purchasing legal weed in a state where recreational weed is legal. No matter how hard I try, I have never been able to buy weed legally. Have I ever purchased legal weed from a legal dispensary? Sure. Have I ever done it legally? Not yet. And again, I've tried really, really hard. Also, the cabins have been Sadly modernized from the mid-20th century, I engage with a racist about the audacity of Mexicans to make Coca-Cola and another racist about my hometown's new census data. There was a huge storm that was insane, causing our dock to land on our neighbor's dock, which is not that close. And the local rag, the Houghton Lake Resorter, did not disappoint with readers insisting that historically the United States was founded under the term, In God We Trust, despite the reality that it is merely a phrase on money linking capitalism to religion that didn't appear until 1864 and is not in any founding document. You'd be surprised how many self-proclaimed patriots actually want to overthrow the government and replace it with a fascistic theocracy. Okay, if you listen to this show, probably not. I almost forgot you won't believe what I caught while fishing. And because my niece asked me to officiate her wedding, I have no idea why. I became not only an ordained minister and high priest in the Church of the Subgenius, which guarantees eternal salvation or triple your money back, but I also became an ordained minister in the Universal Life Church, which guarantees nothing but promotes freedom of religion and to do what which is right. Right, Schmite? I want a triple your money back guarantee on my salvation. But more importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what's Chuck's password? (laughs) Nice. What's Chuck's password? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Yes, I said by the end of Wednesday's show because Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth is moving to Wednesdays every week at 11 a.m. Chicago time. And I will be telling you more about our new schedule later this week as well. So stay tuned in for that. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again, the question from hell is, what is Chuck's password? What is Chuck's password? But first, we do have some breaking news, albeit nearly 20 years late. New York Times front page today features a story on how the Taliban wanted to surrender to the United States back in November of 2001, but the Bush administration refused as Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld stated, we do not negotiate surrenders, which is one of a long list of stupid statements Rumsfeld made in lying us into wars in both Afghanistan and Iraq, launching the forever war that may never, never end. And by the way, the only way you can have a surrender is by negotiating? So I don't really understand what the hell Rumsfeld was talking about. 
Sure, it would have been nice if this was a front-page story in the New York Times back in November of 2001 when the Taliban were begging for peace. I mean, we repeatedly mentioned it here on This Is Hell, but back then, warmongers in the government and media were dismissing the idea of responding to 9-11 as if it was a criminal act, and instead were determined to view 9-11 as an act of war, which it was not, as Al-Qaeda is not a state. However, the crowd that loves the votes and ratings they get from supporting war we're using phrases like we'd rather parachute in soldiers to defeat the Taliban than lawyers to serve them with warrants. So thanks, New York Times, for reporting how we could have avoided the forever war nearly 20 years after that forever war started. The New York Times truly is the news that gives you fits in print. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is a grilled sandwich including your choice of cold cuts and cheese. The EliteDaily.com article, Five Things to Do Before Bed to Help Ward Off a Hangover, doesn't offer cures as much as it does preventatives. Writers Carolyn Burke and Molly Burford report, eating in general is important preparation for a night of drinking, but timing is key. They then quote Dr. Jessica L. Moreno, a pharmaceutical doctor and board-certified psychiatric pharmacist, saying, eating helps before drinking has started and while drinking is happening or very shortly after drinking has ended. The point of eating is to slow down the rate of alcohol absorption. Elite Daily's Burke and Burford continue. Conventional wisdom and your drunk brain might advise getting pizza or an amazingly greasy breakfast sandwich on the way home, but in truth, you'll be better off making something simple and easily digestible that won't disrupt your sleep, a crucial component of your hangover restoration. Dr. Moreno recommends foods higher in fat and protein like cold cuts and cheese. If you're experiencing nausea, toast, or another easily digestible card may may help settle your stomach. That makes this week's hangover cure a toasted or grilled sandwich with your choice of cold cuts and cheese. By the way, uh, board-certified psychiatric pharmacist. I'm an uncertified psychiatric pharmacist, in case anybody's wondering. Uh, Putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a... Horrible business model. This is hell. And if you would like to support our horrible business model that puts people before profits, subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. While Alex has been sharing uh, archived content you cannot find anywhere else over the last couple of weeks at this is hell.com. During my most recent monologue, that was like three, two weeks ago, on Patreon prior to going to my annual family summer vacation, I shared the who, what, when, where, why, and how of my family's long history at our holiday getaway dating back to before I was born. It's the context of what happened at the lake this week. And if you are a longtime Patreon subscriber and heard last year's weekly analysis of a part of Hangover Country via the local paper there, the Houghton Lake Resorters' letters to the editor page, you will not be surprised by what happened over the last couple of weeks at the lake. Following that monologue, we played an interview that was 10 years old to the day with economist Richard D. Wolf, who, for whatever reason, is suddenly hip, or is it hep, with the kids today. Richard was on back in August of 2011 to tell us about the two lootings of the public. One was the looting of the working class and low wages, poor benefits and precarious work. The other was that of the government making it so the state could not come to the help of the working class. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Braden sent us an email from Newcastle, Australia, and it finally arrived while we were on summer break. Boy, those emails take a long time for 
from Australia. Braden writes to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Hi, Chuck. I hope you enjoyed your holiday. I'm looking forward to hearing about it this week. I just couldn't help but think of you while I read this excellent piece by Ben Jenkins, sketch comic at SBS Australia. It's on the ridiculousness of getting to broadcast an opinion as a job. This isn't really a guest suggestion because based on the derision of on his derision of opinion havers, I doubt that Ben would appreciate being asked to further voice his opinion about him. It's just great writing if you ever get a chance to read something that's not for work. It certainly tickled me. All the best to you and the team, Braden, in Newcastle, Australia. First, yes, Braden, this week I will be sharing what happened with me on holiday last for the last couple of weeks, including later on today's show when I will explain, no matter how much I try, I simply cannot buy weed legally, even where it's legal. The article uh, Braden links to is called The Debris Shovelers, a short essay by Ben Jenkins, who writes for The Idiot Report. It really is a great article. It's a great opinion piece about how people who just keep repeating their opinions suddenly think that they're experts and all of a sudden don't doubt themselves. Thanks again, Braden. And remember, this is hell, the only radio show, live stream, or podcast where we guarantee you are smarter than the host or triple your money back. We also got an email at our... At, Chuck at thisishell.com from Derek who writes, I am from Lansing, Illinois. And I don't appreciate all the Lansing bashing you did on the show this week. Lansing is a great town with the best pizza place in the world. Rico's. Get the spicy sauce. By the way, love the episode about palm oil. Thanks again, Derek. First, let me be straight about my Lansing, Illinois experience. I was hitchhiking from Lansing, Michigan to Chicago, and after a number of rides and at least nine hours of what should be a six-hour trip, I was dropped off in Lansing just inside Illinois and southwest of Hammond, Indiana, if that helps anybody. And all I saw was the kind of suburban nightmare where I was raised, a town called East Detroit, Michigan, which was not east of Detroit and has ditched the Detroit part of their name despite sharing a border with Detroit. But when it comes to what I saw, and considering I am legally blind, Lansing looked like a giant strip mall in a car lot, which is what my hometown looks like. My ride dropped me at a strip mall parking lot and left. There was a pizza place in the mall and I saw a delivery driver. I asked if he would take me back to the Metro stop in Harvey, which makes Lansing look like freaking Manhattan. And no, it was not Derek's suggested Rico's, the pizza place for the driver, which you can find at originalricoslansing.com and is now hiring, unsurprisingly. So my Lansing bashing is based on one short experience on a bad day when I was forced to go to even worse Harvey, Illinois, to get to Chicago. If you would like to complain about my Lansing or now Harvey, Illinois bashing, please email me like Derek did at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. And if you do, we'll likely share your thoughts on air. And while Derek liked our conversation on palm oil, another listener did not. And it had nothing to do with our conversation on palm oil. We'll be sharing that following our talk with Geo on police abolition. Coming up, the police gotta go and be replaced by something better. Anything better. We'll also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from Al, which is, what is Chuck's password? What is Chuck's password? We'll share why a listener is upset about our talk on palm oil. And again, it has nothing to do with our talk on palm oil. I'll explain how I try to buy weed legally for the first time and miserably failed. And we'll tell you what's coming up this week on This Is Hell. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is 
hell. Police defend laws that enforce injustice and impose growing inequality and poverty, leaving the citizenry with no platform to redress their grievances other than taking their movement to the streets. Law enforcement and supposedly law and order politics cause chaos, disorder, violence, death, in defense of the wealthy at everyone else's expense. Here to help us understand why police abolition is necessary, Gio Maher returns to This Is Hell, and he is the author of the new book, A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Gio. Hey, Chuck. So glad to be back on. Great to hear you and great to hear your wonderful voice. You can find the, uh, our past interview with Gio by going to our website, thisishell.com, and searching on his last name, Maher. You can find out more about Gio at geomar.com And, Gio, please prepare yourself because I have I had like 120 questions for you, and I've whittled it down to 50. So <laughs> let's see how many of these we can get through. <laughs> you described the uh, burning of Minnesota's third police precinct on May 28, 2020, by citizens protesting the police killing of George Floyd. You write of this kind of response by the public, quote, to burn a building or a car is like the riot itself, a form of communication. Too often, however, the enemy is out of reach, and so fires are lit for attention to grab the headlines, or quite simply because nothing else has worked. A desperate bid to puncture the barrier between those who are and are not heard, those who matter and those who don't. You say it's a form of communication, but the media, the police, the government will all call this violence, not communication. Why, in your opinion, is the burning of the third precinct better understood as a form of communication rather than an act of violence? I mean, I, th- I think we need to understand the function of uh, riotous street protests and rebellion in not only U.S. history, but, but global history. This is one of the most you know, important forms of resistance. And yet it's one that's systematically uh, dismissed as somehow irrational, as destructive, um, as, you know, you know, yeah, and, and, and the whole thing is, is really absurd. Because what else do we know about the, the burning of the third precinct? We know that the majority of Americans polled in the aftermath supported the act, said they thought it was a reasonable response. Why? Because it was a direct and mechanical response to what was seen as, you know, the murder of George Floyd. It was a a, a reaction to that that made something very, very clear, despite the ideological uh, obfuscation of the media, despite the fact that all we hear when, when there's mass resistance in the streets is that this is irrational, is that it doesn't accomplish anything, and so somehow we should do more uh, productive things, which are apparently uh, sort of appealing to the conscience of political leaders, which, of course, you know, accomplishes nothing, um, you know, which means asking nicely for change, for equality, for an end to police brutality and the police murder of black and brown people, which, of, co- of course, accomplishes nothing. And so despite the fact that the media, the political talking heads uh, insist that rebelling in the streets uh, is irrational, what we know is that it's proven to be one of the most rational forms of resistance. Uh, you know, it's not the end all be all of social change, but it's almost always the very first step. So the media, the government, the police see this as irrational and unproductive. If the burning was because nothing else had worked, to what extent was the destruction of the third police precinct due to a failure of democracy, that the people were not given an avenue to redress their grievances, that the U.S. version of what it calls democracy had failed. Yes, I mean, and this is, of course, again, an incredibly systematic phenomenon. I mean, I think, 
very few of us think that we live in a democracy in which the will of the people is directly, you know, reflected in the uh, in the political leadership of the country. And yet there are moments where that becomes crystal clear, where, where it becomes so gallingly and insultingly clear um, that people realize, you know, very clearly that that something else needs to be done. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened on that night. Um, and again, U.S. history is punctuated with this because we live in a deeply white supremacist society that has always, uh, you know, proclaimed equality since the founding, of course, and yet is built on uh, not only the labor extraction, you know, from poor people of color in particular, um, you know, but also, uh, you know, on the systematic, you know, uh, dispossession of indigenous people and the continued and ongoing brutality. And so when we have you know, if we're talking about abolition, we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, a reference point being the abolition of slavery. Um, and yet, uh, you know, as you mentioned in your in your intro, abolition and reconstruction are always required to go hand in hand. Right. There always need to be something else being built as the old institutions are being torn down. Um, and, and after the, the Civil War, that was, uh, you know, that was blocked by white supremacist violence by the by the Klan. Um, and instead, you've seen this replacement of old institutions with new. You see the expansion and racialization of crime, mass incarceration, giving us the society that we have today. And Instead of real abolition and real reconstruction, we got the police and prisons, which is why abolitionists continue to fight today. A lot of people were reacting to these police protests last summer as if this was completely unprecedented, that nobody had had this kind of uprising against the police in the United States history ever. Yet you point out in your book that the police are the number one historical target of protests here in the United States. Why do we, uh, what do we learn, uh, how are we misled by the framing that this is unprecedented when in reality, it seems like the police are the number one target for protests? I mean, that's absolutely true. It's never been simply about the police, as, for example, Kianga Yamada Taylor has shown very clearly that even when people are, are mobilizing against the police, they're also concerned with questions like employment, questions like housing. Those are part of this kind of package of discontent, discontent that explodes periodically. But what causes and provokes um, the explosion, you know, whether it's Watts, whether it's Los Angeles, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, historical you know, rebellions in Philadelphia, in Minneapolis and elsewhere, whether it's Oscar Grant in Oakland, all of those frustrations um, often tend to explode around police brutality. Why? Because the police are the most obvious upholders and enforcers of the existing order of racial inequality, of economic inequality, of gendered power. And so the police, of course, in the enforcement of that, which is a brazen violence that the police unleash in the streets, um, what they do is they provoke uh, the explosion of, of of these frustrations, and they do it systematically throughout history. So again, there's this massive historical, uh, you know, rewriting and you know revisionism that tries to act as if uh, rebelling, rioting, uh, resisting in the streets, mass militant action, uproarious, you know, uproarious action is is ineffective when it's essentially the only thing that's been effective in U.S. history. And again, uh, this struggle is far from over. Um, but, you know, all of the accomplishments that have been made over the past, you know, 100 years, certainly you can trace them back to some of the most rebellious forms of protest. You know, the, when people hit the streets and say, we have had enough, this is not going to continue, you know, as, you know, uh, as it has in the past. That was made perfectly clear in uh, Ferguson, in Baltimore, and the fact that, you know, how easily we forget that people were not talking about Black Lives Matter on a mass scale. They were not talking about 
transforming policing, mass incarceration in the same way that they are today. It was the militant protest in the street that made that mandatory. That didn't say, please, can we talk about this? That said, this is what we're going to talk about. This is the agenda for change for the next several years. So you were mentioning how these police protests have been going on for so long and that they touch on so many other aspects of our daily lives. Why is it that police protesting the police leads to so many places that can share a common ground? Again, what is it the police do? Uh, and here we need to be very careful um, because, again, the liberal story is, of course, what we were all taught or many of us were taught so that the police protect and they serve, that they exist to uphold law and order, that they produce something called public safety. Not only is that a lie in practice, but it's a lie in the sort of origins of the police and their function and what they were actually designed to do. Um, once we reorient our understanding and grasp the fact that the police are, you know, do exist and were established to uphold the power of wealth and the power of whiteness, um, then we can begin to look um, a, a little differently uh, on those claims and on what it would mean to resist them. Throughout history, this has been the case. We know, and many people have probably you know, heard, the origin story of US policing in particular as being in, in slave patrols, right? In those informal uh, committees established to capture uh, escaped slaves and in the aftermath of slavery to police black people and freed you know, formerly, uh, you know, former slaves. Uh, alongside that, you have the function of the police, particularly in the North, and this is more of a global story as well, um, to police wealth, right? And you, when you have wealthy people, when you have vast wealth inequalities, you are going to have scared rich people and you're going to have poor people who are willing to uh, engage in, in criminal activity to, uh, you know, to get a piece of that, especially when they're starving, especially when they're systematically dispossessed. So what does that all mean? That's what the police do. They, they, uh, they police the boundaries of wealth, they protect the wealthy, and they protect uh, you know, the, you know, those who claim that privilege uh, you know, uh, attributed to, to whiteness. As long as you've got that society, that's what they do. And that's why the protests that have broken out against the police have taken so many different forms and have uh, you know, historically done the same. Why? Because the police are strike breakers. They destroy workers' movements. They destroy any effort by the poor um, to build a different kind of society. They destroy left-wing movements, socialist movements, communist movements, anarchist movements, and they systematically destroy any attempt by communities of color and colonized populations, whether in the U.S. or abroad, to get together, build power, and make substantive demands on the system. And that's why struggles against the police are such a unifying factor, because you know there are many, many different reasons that people plug into these struggles because of what the police do and their role and how central that role is to modern society. So why do the police oppose unions? After all, the fraternal orders of police, that, that's, their, that's where all their political power is in, is within their own labor organizing. So why do the police oppose unions if they understand that their power is within their own union? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you, we need to turn that inside out. And I think this this conversation is very important because this is a debate that needs to be had on the left. You know, there are differing opinions on these questions. And I think we need to be absolutely clear about the fact that uh, it's not that, you know, despite finding their own power in unions, the police are against unions. It's the fact that the police are against unions, and that's why their so-called unions are nothing of the sort. So, you know, even when they call themselves police unions, these are organizations of organized strike breakers whose mission and whose interest lay in destroying working class movements and to destroying movements of uh, poor communities uh, of color. That is not compatible 
with union solidarity. That is not compatible with a strong, global, multiracial working class. And so we need to be clear about that out right out the gate, because there are a lot of people that say, if you justify attacks on police unions, you justify attacks on teachers unions, on other public sector unions. And there's, um, it, this is absurd. These are not the same thing. They are not the same thing in their history, um, where, you know, during the course of which police organizations traded the right to strike for a stable position upholding the status quo. That's what they did. They're not, they're not unions in the sense that they don't, they don't oppose the status quo in favor of a more egalitarian society. They gave up that right to play a role in upholding and stabilizing the status quo and preventing the ch kind of change that other workers are demanding. And as a result of this, so-called police unions, uh, often you know, called benevolent societies or you know, fraternal orders, uh, you know, they are uniformly right-wing uniformly conservative. They point toward a political horizon that is one in which, you know, of a, you know, enforced hierarchy, enforced inequality um, and obedience to the law, even though they break it all the time. How far would abolishing police unions go toward reforming the police to a point where we don't have to have police abolition? Um, I mean, it's it's not so much a question of, of not then needing abolition, but if we're thinking about the sort of two parts of, of, you know, of abolition, namely the destroying of an institution, tearing down, dismantling the police and building a different kind of society, the hinge of that is really attacking the root of police power, breaking um, you know, that power. Um, and, and this is why, uh, again, we need to take seriously this question of so-called police unions, because they are the spearhead of police power. They need to be dismantled, resisted, abolished, destroyed, annihilated. These organizations represent the most fascistic element of US, U.S. society. And here we need to be absolutely clear. Police um, power is not a static thing. It's not stable throughout history. It is an expanding force. So what policing does is not simply to reflect the society, but to reshape it. And the police unions play a huge role in this. Um, they are at the spearhead of pushing police power further. What does this mean in practice? It means um, enforcing impunity. It means making it literally almost impossible to hold police accountable for the violence that they inflict on society. Um, they do this through local negotiations with city uh, administrations, um, binding arbitration. They do it on the state level by, force, by enforcing what they call uh, you know, law enforcement officer bill of rights, which are special rights. You know, I mean, if for a society that, that believes in one person, one vote, equal rights, due process, why is it that we're giving police literal special rights to not be held to the same standards of people in society when what you would think would be the opposite, right? That there's people walking around with guns legally allowed to use violence, they should be held to a higher standard. So that, you know, these law enforcement bill of rights give police special rights, a special layer of protection that prevents them from being held accountable. And on a federal level, they're trying to do the same and they're pushing the broad narrative um, of the far right, right? So this is why the police unions, but also the ICE union, the, the border patrol union, not only did they endorse Trump the first time around, but they re-upped that support enthusiastically. Um, and they demanded that Trump, you know, uh, engage in a whole range of policy uh, transformations that have nothing to do with policing, right? Uh, you know, the police unions were demanding uh, a tightening the, Cuba, the blockade on Cuba. Why? Because they're right-wingers, they're fascists, and this is the kind of world that they want to build and they do all the time. Now, destroying police unions is absolutely essential. It is not the end of the road, right? Because once you've broken that power, 
you need to continue to struggle to establish, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a new form of existence, um, which is precisely what we're talking about when we're talking about abolition. So do you, do you think police unions pushed the Trump administration farther to the right? Not that they pushed him to the right, but they're, you know, one of his most loyal, uh, you know, bases of support. They reflect the far right of the far right. And again, you can see this in their policy platforms. You can see it in the, you know, in, in the demands that they make. And that's why it's so doubly galling that that mainstream labor unions bend over backwards to keep them in the union because they push the entire labor movement to the right. They are a right-wing force within the labor movement, a sort of fifth column of fascism within labor. They, they, they need to be expelled, you know, from these unions. Um, and, and, you know, the part of the reason that the unions resisted is because they don't want to lose any power. They're already losing so much. True, absolutely true. And, and, and that's almost understandable on a certain level. But how many, you know, communities of color, workers of color, low-income workers are being chased away by the fact that their union has loud voices for so-called law and order and for policing? You know, really revisioning what a multiracial global labor movement would look like, you know, you're talking about a vast majority of, you know, poor workers of color um, and, you know, and, and really aggressively pursuing that would mean getting rid of police unions and charting a progressive course that would then be able to welcome in millions of more workers. You also remind us that George Floyd was hardly the first black person killed recently by Minneapolis police. As you write, it still came as a shock when City Council President Lisa Bender tweeted dramatically on June 4th, we are going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department and replace it with a transformative new model of public safety. Flanked by councilors Jeremiah Ellison and Alondro Cano, Bender soon unveiled a veto-proof majority, promising to make good on the plan. Cano had seen police reform in practice, had heard the department lauded by Obama's police reform czars, and it still came to this. Minneapolis Police Department Officer Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck. To you, what explains why the MPD was being lauded by Obama's police reform czars, yet post-reform there's still police killings like those of George Floyd, Philando Castile, and back in 2015, when Obama was still in office, the police killing of Jamar Clark. How can these reform police departments be lauded and still violent, even deadly? Because reform is a joke. Police reform is, uh, you know, I would, I would say it's meaningless, um, but unfortunately, that's not even true. It has an, an incredibly significant meaning because police reform is the fundamental way that the police cleanse their image, justify their role, and claim to be always getting better at what they do when we know that's not true. Now, police reform is as old as the police. Immediately on the establishment of the police, they were already being reformed. Why? Because they were corrupt. Why? Because they were violent. They were, you know, engaging in torture already, which we know they still do in Chicago in particular. Um, and, and, you know, and so reform is as old as policing. Nothing has changed really fundamentally. And yet you have these waves of reform, the 1920s and 30s, the 1960s. Every time there are movements in the streets demanding better, uh, you get this promise of reform. You get the same package, the same menu of uh, useless reforms, um, and they accomplish nothing. Right. And, at, at, you know, at worst, they're absolutely counterproductive. So-called community policing is the infiltration of communities by police and the destruction of those communities, the weaken, weakening of their power. Um, you get technological reforms like, um, you know, in the past, you know, so-called less lethal weapons, which we know are incredibly lethal um, in the present, you know, body cameras, which do not 
prevent police violence, which do not even decrease police violence. If anything, you know, there are statistical analyses showing an increase in the police use of, of force because they're pretty sure that this camera pointing out from their chest will give them an alibi uh, in court and prevent them from being held accountable. Uh, and so, you know, the, these reforms change nothing. And yet it's the it's the systematic way that the police and their sort of political sponsors and patrons uh, justify what they do and say, now this time the reform is going to work. Um, but again, if we're talking about rationality versus irrationality, what could be more irrational than systematically trying to do something that has always failed? Uh, supporting policing when we know policing doesn't work, when we know it doesn't make communities safer, but promising every time that reform is on the table that this time it, it'll be different. You mentioned that as rolling protests continued across Minneapolis last year and evacuated 136 room Sheraton Hotel was quickly commandeered by organizers and transformed into a sort of self-managed commune staffed by volunteers to house local homeless residents. The Sheraton was but one part of a broader ecosystem of mutual aid that sprang up across Minneapolis during the George Floyd rebellions, providing a glimpse of the new forms of life that could be possible, will be possible once the old are obsolete. So the media focus was on vandalism they called violence and looting, as well as the violence between protesters and police. What do we miss in the debate over alternatives to policing, in the debate over police abolition, when we are not aware of what you call a broader ecosystem of mutual aid that sprang up across Minneapolis? Because those were not the reports that they were showing on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, or any of the major networks. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I like to say that we, we all know what a world without police looks like, um, because when we have a conflict with our neighbors, when we have a conflict with family members, um, often, and I, and I hope this is often the case, uh, yeah, our first resort is not to call the police to solve that problem. Um, we talk, we talk it out, we hash it out, we you know, we de-escalate conflict before it becomes violent. Um, we engage in a whole range of, of behaviors that somehow don't apply when we're thinking on a macro scale, when we're thinking of cities, or especially if, you know, if, you know, for, for sort of white, you know, rural residents who are scared of cities, they couldn't even possibly imagine the idea that something like what they themselves practice every day could apply to these dangerous places known as cities. Um, and we don't know, uh, on top of that, that there exists this entire ecosystem, right? That, that for decades and, of course, longer in many cases, there have been a whole range of, uh, you know, of crisis intervention organizations, of, uh, you know, organizations like, like rape crisis centers to, to uh, prevent and protect women from, you know, from assault. Um, organizations that seek to provide youth uh, with alternatives and youth and with and you even just community centers as we know them. Uh, on top of that, we, you know, we're talking about a whole range of organizations that have directly sought to, uh, you know, to push back on mass incarceration, to push back on the criminalization of youth of color in particular, and to create alternatives uh, to incarceration. All of these have existed. What we're looking at today, particularly in the aftermath of the George Floyd rebellions, which, you know, have put abolition uh, onto, a, you know, a kind of unprecedented public uh, pedestal for consideration. Um, what we need to do is, is stitch those together, right? What does that mean? All the way from the local level, that means getting together with your neighbors. It means establishing a communication network so that not only if the police enter the community, you can, uh, you know, make sure that people have their eyes on the police to make sure that there's no, uh, you know, no police violence, no police harassment and brutality in your community. 
Um, but also, so if there's a conflict, an intra-community conflict, right, between neighbors, uh, between family members, that this doesn't escalate to the level on which the police are brought in. Um, you know, shortly after George Floyd was killed and in the midst, really in the midst of the rebellions, uh, just down the block from where I live, Walter Wallace, uh, you know, a young man who was having a, a mental health crisis, was shot and killed by Philadelphia police. This is not anything new uh, at all, but it was you know, striking a striking example of the fact that, yeah, he was having a mental health crisis. No, the police are not mental health first responders. They should not be. They're not equipped to deal with these kind of crises and they bring one tool to the job, which is violence. Uh, you know, his neighbors may have been slightly concerned. They may have been worried. His mother was there trying to de-escalate the situation, but no one wanted the police there to intervene and, you know, and use lethal force, which is what they, what, what they eventually did. Um, we know how to build this world. It's a question of will, and it's a question of building on the experiments that already exist. And there was the story breaking over the weekend of the Huntsville police officer who was uh, finally found guilty for killing somebody who was suicidal when he rushed into a room where another cop was already mitigating the situation and they didn't know firing need to happen at the time. You also point out that at its broadest, the police protests included the wave of global resistance to neoliberalism, often led by the poorest that rattled Latin America and North Africa before crash landing in the global north. If these police protests are resistance against neoliberalism, Gio, why are we not having a public debate over neoliberalism where the word neoliberalism is actually used? To what extent can there be resistance to neoliberalism as long as neoliberalism is not widely understood or directly discussed anywhere? I mean, on some level, I think, uh, you know, we are. I like to think about these things in broad kind of historical uh, arcs. If we're looking at the U.S. more narrowly, um, the, the Occupy movement that exploded in 2011 really put that debate center stage. Now, we may have forgotten about it a bit, but we've also been shaped by that debate, by the recentering of the question of, of uh, the massive economic wealth being accrued by the wealthiest. Um, and just a few years later, of course, then you had the, the explosion of, of mass resistance against, uh, you know, the, re, the explosion, the reignition of, of resistance against police violence and police brutality in Ferguson uh, and in Baltimore. That's the US story, right? Globally speaking, again, you know, as I mentioned in the book, Latin America was uh, sort of, you know, a, a laboratory for neoliberalism. In the 70s, particularly through dictatorship, through, through the, the force of, of you know, um, brutality um, in Chile and, and other places, neoliberalism was tested out. Um, it became a, a governing doctrine in the 1980s and resistance to it, um, which eventually gave rise to what we call the pink tide, this wave of leftist movements and governments in Latin America emerged uh, toward the tail end of the 90s and into the 2000s. Now that hit the U.S. a little bit later. What do I mean by hit the U.S.? This, this sort of radically capitalistic doctrine of allowing the wealthiest to essentially run the show and extract maximum you know, uh, wealth uh, while providing the most minimal uh, social safety net. You know, of course that creates resistance as it did in Latin America. And again, to get back to where we started, though the way that that manifests fundamentally at first is always a massive re rebellion. It's always a riot. It's always an explosive uh, outpouring of protest on the streets that shakes the political system, that forces us to reconsider, uh, you know, our political uh, understanding and chart a path forward. So, you know, these things hit the U.S. a bit later with the radical austerity of, uh, you know, of the Reagan years, 
um, which has been just re-upped since the 2008 uh, you know, financial crisis. Um, and yet the wealthy still continue to amass huge amounts of wealth at the expense of the poor. Uh, public welfare continues to be cut um, and people are left uh, out in the cold often, literally. That's the context, right, that we're talking about. And so when these uh, you know, protests explode, I think we are talking about neoliberalism. Of course, we need to center those economic questions. And of course, there are constant debates about how to square struggles for uh, black liberation with struggles for economic liberation. Those are going to be difficult debates, but I think we've been on the way and on the path of doing that for several years now. We are speaking with Gio Maher. He is author of A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. You can find out more about Gio at geomar.com. You write that white supremacy never goes quietly. However, the brutal repression and militarized force that police unleashed on protests nationwide only seemed to confer- confirm what their critics had been saying all along. And the uptick in attacks by armed vigilantes only drove home the complicity between institutionalized policing and extra-institutional white supremacist terror. Does this mean police violence will continue to increase as the police abolition movement moves forward? Is worse police violence inevitable as white supremacy continues to be increasingly challenged? And what happens when the police are abolished? What happens when that force of people who have all of this training and know how to use weapons, what happens when they are abolished? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, And I think... Uh, you know the you know looking at the entire constellation uh, unfortunately i think it's it's likely that this sort of flailing police violence will continue because this is the way things often play out right you've got on the one hand um some level of political will to at least conceal police violence to you know to reduce the most overt manifestations of it but what this produces in police forces is a kind of resentment is a defensiveness which we see playing out in in incredibly violent ways it reinforces the tie and the bond between policing and the far right which has already been a historic bond and a systematic bond um and so police and we already have seen this police are becoming more aggressively right wing more aggressively racist um to the point where you know po- you know political leaders can't even keep up with it not that they're trying very hard but i mean in philadelphia you know had this this wave of firings of, of police officers who would post Posted the most racist white supremacist things uh, online, and that's going to continue. Um, those, you know, uh, relationships will only become deeper. Um, the hope is that as we push forward police abolition, you know, the the countervailing tendency will kick in, which is that the police uh, become more worried and, and become more. Uh, subject to whatever kind of oversight we can enforce on them. But again, this is all transitional and it's transitional toward uh, the, you know, the, the moment in which we can really dismantle policing. Again, what does that mean? The phrase defunding, uh, you know, while it's been used, I think, in, in misleading ways by city officials in particular, um, it, it is a way to talk about de, uh, about defunding the police. In other words, withdrawing millions in funding from what the police do every day, which does not make us safer. Statistically, you know, mathematically has not helped to give us a better and safer society to live in, much less an egalitarian society. Take those millions of dollars and put them into alternatives. And this is where I think people don't, you know, have a hard time grasping defunding and certainly abolition, because the idea is that there is nothing to substitute the police. There's always something. Again, people, despite everything, have been building alternatives every single day in their communities. Why? Because the police don't work. 
because government intervention has not helped on that level and something else needs to happen. So what happens when you take those millions of dollars and build community alternatives and establish community networks and community intervention teams that prevent violence before it happens? This is precisely what it is that we're talking about. Your last question though is, is really an incredibly difficult one that we need to, to grapple with. Um, Again, in the, in the book, I take a kind of global perspective. Um, and when you look at places in Latin America, for example, where you had sort of counterinsurgency warfare or in Mexico, where you have mass uh, you know, narco warfare, you do have, and you're left with this entire population of people who are trained to use violence for, uh, you know, for their own gain. Um, that's what the police are in the United States as well. And, and so the danger exists, and we've seen this elsewhere, of decommissioned police, of even you know, you know, other countries that have tried to purge their police forces of the worst and most violent actors, what they do is they immediately integrate themselves directly into, into organized violence of a different kind, organized crime and you know, and other, other kinds of activities. That's something that we need to be incredibly aware of. Um, and it's gonna take a, a great deal of, uh, you know, of struggle, of organizing, of the development of alternatives to, in a way, deprogram people who otherwise have been programmed to engage in violence. You write that W.E.B. Du Bois' magnum opus, Black Reconstruction in America, showed how in its most radical moments, Reconstruction sought to build a society not just of political equality, but of social equality as well. Reconstruction governments pioneered public welfare for the poor in a public school system, created orphanages, schools for the deaf and blind, and mental hospitals, halted debt collection, and abolished debtors' prisons, distributed land, expanded women's rights, and eliminated property restrictions on voting, extending the franchise to even many poor whites as well. These were accomplishments that preceded and rivaled those of the Paris Commune, and this experiment, what Du Bois called abolition democracy, promised a better society for everyone. There are a lot of people on the left who are celebrating the anniversary of the Paris Commune over the last year. And, you know, you don't hear any of the celebration that happens of the reconstruction and the radical democracy that happened at that time. And this isn't the reconstruction of Jim Crow and white supremacy's reimposition of political and social inequality. This is the reconstruction of abolition democracy, which is apparently also erased from our history. Is this erasing and erasing of the potential Impossibility of more radicalized democracy. Is this an erasing of radicalism's success at providing a better life? Certainly. Um, and one of the, the main uh, narrative arcs of Du Bois's Black Reconstruction is precisely to, to show that there was this, even, you know, even at the time of Reconstruction, there was this missed encounter. There was this disconnect between the labor movement and the abolitionist movement. Um, and this had negative impacts for both sides, according to Du Bois. Uh, the labor movement, which uh, fell in, you know, and, and went in for the myth that freed, you know, uh, that freed black labor would be competition for the white labor movement. This is a lie, you know, this is, this is a lie that needed to be debunked, but it was, an, it was convincing enough so that the labor movement ended up, you know, maintaining a kind of, uh, you know, racial backbone um, and engaged often in even race riots against free black labor. On the other hand, Du Bois is critical of many abolitionists who he thought represented a kind of bourgeois, uh, white elite um, who mid themselves missed the fact that the uh, essence of uh, abolition and reconstruction in the U.S. dialectically understood, in other words, the source of where it's actually coming from in practice, were the slaves themselves, who themselves stood up 
who themselves walked off the job and resisted. And Du Bois insists that was a labor movement, right? That was a movement of workers walking off the job, what he calls the general strike, and demanding a better kind of life. And as a result of that, um, and as a result of the general historical condition of, uh, you know, of slaves, of former slaves, the demands were always more than just the vote, right? Voting was incredibly important, but part of what Reconstruction shows is that voting wasn't enough because uh, Black Americans who won the vote were chased away from the polls by white terrorism. They required something else. Um, what is that something else? Armed force in the, you know, in the, you know, in, in the name of like a reconstruction, you know, occupation by the Northern armies, but also their own self-defense networks. But they also required education and land. This was essential for Du Bois. And this is part of what was never fulfilled. This is the, you know, the unfulfilled promise of reconstruction. We often speak of 40 acres and a mule. Even that would have been a huge difference compared to um, mass dispossession, sharecropping, uh, you know, mass incarceration, you know, which was actually the historical uh, outcome and then leading up to um, Black Codes and Jim Crow. The, the mission is today the same, right, which is not only, again, not only to tear down and dismantle institutions like policing and prisons, but to build a different society, a different social fabric that renders them, uh, you know, again, here borrowing the words of, of Angela Davis, renders these institutions obsolete. If you live in a society of equals, why would you have police? If you live in a society that is not distinguished and not defined by economic inequality, racial inequality, gendered inequality, you do not need armed sentinels to guard and patrol those, those inequalities and those boundaries. That's the kind of society in which policing simply doesn't even make sense, where prisons don't make sense. And that's the kind of society that we're trying to build. You point out that police are more than just a gang, however, policing is a racket. It's not merely a metaphor. The sociologist Charles Tilley famously argued that war making and state making can be viewed as protection rackets that meet all the criteria of organized crime. A racketeer offers protection from violence, which they themselves threaten to unleash if their victims do not pay up. And Tilley argues that governments do much the same. The only difference Tilley concludes is that governments do so under the cover of the law. Are police then and and the state an accurate reflection of what the government truly is, a, a legal racket of intimidation and violence. And how do we better understand our relationship with the police and the state when they are just a legal racket of intimidation and violence? Yeah, and, and I hope people don't take this as a metaphor, because uh, part of what I try to insist is it's quite literally not a metaphor. Um, you know, police uh, systematically, and if you watch them, you know, on Fox News, these police union leaders, you know, they'll say this straightforwardly, what, which is what? You want to defund the police? Just wait till you need them. Just wait till you see what happens to you, right? They threaten that some violence will come down on you and they won't be there to help. This is literally what a racket uh, does, especially when, you know, they themselves are engaged in that violence. I wish this was a metaphor, but we have so many examples nationwide of cities um, and, you know, especially when police begin to credit and when, when uh, city officials or the people begin to criticize the police and you see uh, what happens. In Minneapolis just a few years ago, prior to George Floyd, there was talk of uh, clipping the police wings just a little bit, really just small modifications of, uh, of funding. And business owners who called the police, the police, you know, themselves said, don't talk to us about it. If you need help, talk to the city leaders. This is exactly what a racket does. This is exactly what a strong arm campaign does. And what policing does in general is a macro version of this where they say, well, just give us this many more millions of dollars for weaponry and we will finally fulfill the promise of making you safe when we know uh, that not to be uh, the case at all. 
Um, and, and so, yes, it, it, the police do reflect the broader parameters of society in that sense. But again, we do need to understand at the same time that they represent a specifically fascistic and concentrated element of that, right? They are not just uh, the guardians of the state, they're the spearhead of a new kind of society that they're constantly trying to build, right? Which is, again, a society that veers toward the right, a society of blind respect for authority, a society of white supremacy, of economic inequality, um, what we would call a corporatist society, where the police stand there to violently mediate and make sure that no one questions the inequalities of that existing society. So the police do reflect, you know, all of the pro-capitalist white supremacist foundations of the government, but at the same time, this is why they often enter into conflict with local political leaders, because what they're demanding is more radical still. You write that uh, not content to extort the public through the political system, many police departments steal in more direct ways with entire departments nationwide, funding their operations through the system of legalized theft known as civil asset forfeiture, in which police seize and keep assets that they claim to be involved in criminal activity, even where the owners are not convicted or even arrested. As of 2014, civil asset forfeiture surpassed total losses from all burglaries nationwide some $5 billion annually to avoid paying higher taxes for the police? Have we turned them into a gang of scavengers? I mean, on the one hand, they, they do this, they steal systematically, but we haven't, you know, that, that isn't the result of any kind of scarcity. We haven't reduced funding. You know, state funding has only increased at the same time that they're stealing. So it's not that they, they're having to scavenge, it's that they're greedy and, and, that, the, and that the state funding is, not, is never enough. And so they're always looking for more, always more funding, always more impunity, always more economic benefits and retirement uh, privileges than any public sector union, uh, you know, has the access to, has access to or demands. And so, yeah, it's not about scarcity. It's about, it's about the fact that, you know, if you look at police budgets, you know, some city budgets have over the past 50 or 60 years have tripled their funding for the police. The number of police on the streets is more than ever before and society doesn't get any safer as a result. Uh, you know, we need to understand that this is a, this is blackmail. It's organized, you know, strong arm robbery uh, by the police and, you know, and the police themselves then, you know, turn around and kill more than a thousand people every year. And, and like I say, in the beginning of the conclusion, if there was a gang on the streets killing a thousand people a year, we would have a public safety emergency about it. We wouldn't be talking about reforming. We would be talking about dismantling and abolishing that organization. But that organization is, you know, as, as Tupac Shakur once put it, you know, the biggest gang on the streets is the police. And you ask what explains such close collaboration, even complicity between law enforcement and the far right, especially white supremacists. The assumption is often that white supremacists have infiltrated police departments. While this is certainly true on some level, it neglects the historical functioning of policing and the ideology it produces. According to the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right, the presence of white supremacists in law enforcement has reached epidemic levels, but not due to infiltration from the outside. Instead, as we've seen, quote, links be between the police and organized racism are as old as the institutions themselves, and police forces have been breeding grounds for far-right ideology for decades. Now, we spoke with former undercover FBI agent Mike German about how he infiltrated white supremacist groups and saw so many police involved. Have the police not been infiltrated by white supremacist organizations, but are white supremacist organizations that have fostered and protect, and protect white supremacy? Does, does policing attract white supremacists or does it make white supremacists? 
I mean, it does both of those things, and it should be no surprise that it, that it's able to do both, right? If you're if you're a white supremacist bully and you need a job, I mean, really, what else? What else is better suited to your <laughs> to your concerns? You could be a waiter. But at the same time, you know, every every element of policing does produce this, right? Um, it, you know, it produces, uh, you know, a a bullyish authority. It produces a save, you know, a, you know, police are trained to save their own lives and take no risks, uh, you know, despite what we say about protecting and serving. Um, and so they're protecting themselves. Every time there's a criticism of police power, it creates a resentment that fuels the far right. Of course, police develop, uh, you know, deeply racist views through their training, through their culturation, um, you know, and through their street practice, because they're sent into communities to uh, to oppress poor communities of color. Um, and all of these things are, it's a big machine for, for producing white supremacy. And this is why it's even, you know, if we look even in a longer historical perspective, there's never really any separation, right? Between police and lynch mobs, it was very difficult to determine what the difference was. One might have worn a badge, um, but all the off-duty cops were at, were at the lynch mob anyway, and the complicity historically has always been there. So I think part of the caution is, of course, we need to pay attention to the fact that white supremacists are flooding into law enforcement, um, but that's actually a better argument for understanding the why um, and understanding that the complicity has always been there. Just a couple more questions for you. You write, a world without police is not a utopia. It is real. And in some sense, it already exists. It is all around us, from our families, blocks, and community organizations to broader experiments across the globe and the powerful wave of abolitionist struggle that surged forth to demand justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. A real lasting justice in which we keep us safe. How is our family a world without police? And how can we take that existence of that familial world, our unpoliced family life, to the world writ large. Yeah, I think we should be real about the fact that not all this is not all families. It's a it's 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 a metaphor. <laughs> Thinking about how we how we deal with people that we love, that we trust, that we feel that we're in community with, and that that question of family is often much larger than simply, you know, biological or, you know, or nuclear. Um, but the point is that the world of police is a world in which we confront and respond to every problem and every conflict with the police. The police are handed to us as the single instrument for solving uh, you know, social problems, social inequality, a lack of mental health care, a lack of after-school activities and sports activities for youth, all of these problems. And the police will actually tell you this. They'll say, listen, they put us out on the streets to try to solve problems that are not of our own making. No, and, and they don't say so in a sympathetic way, but they're speaking the truth when they when they say that, which is the fact that policing is seen as the one size fits all uh, response to all you know social conflicts, inequalities, you know, et cetera. Family, the way I understand family is very much different from that, right? When you have a problem, you talk about it, you, you work it out, you intervene. This isn't, you know, I mean, that, that makes it sound a little, you know, um, too sort of Pollyannish, but, you know, you have organizations on the ground like Mask in Chicago that are directly intervening in, in conflict before it happens. And that is an incredibly dangerous job. And there are people who have suffered the consequences of trying to do that work. But what it means is saying to community members, which after all are not, you know, this sort of like Clintonite uh, myth of the super predator. They are people's nephews and nieces and children and cousins. They are people who are part of communities who, uh, you know, you know, in the best of cases 
are you know able to be fully integrated into the nonviolent functioning of those communities if they're given an opportunity. And it's a question of giving those opportunities. On the one hand, building a different kind of society by funding alternatives, but also of allowing communities themselves to intervene in you know, in uh, essentially trying to cut off conflict at the knees before it becomes violent. This is incredibly effective. It's been proven effective. And it's one of one of the many effective strategies that we see developing today. Um, and, and it's something that just simply needs to be expanded. But at the same time, you've got, um, you know, mayors like Lori Lightfoot in Chicago getting elected saying they're going to do something about the police and what they give to community organizations like MASK um, is a tiny fraction, one one hundredth at best of what the police are given. Um, and so the, the question of defunding is about how can we flip that equation? How can we give, you know, you know, early intervention, crisis intervention organizations more funding than the police and see what they can do with it? Because the police are, uh, you know, squandering that money and, and making us less safe in the process. We have been speaking with Gio Maher, author of the new book, A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. You can find out more about Gio at Gio Maher, and you can find an interview that we did in the past with Gio at our website, thisishell.com. When you search on Maher, that's M-A-H-E-R. One last question for you, Gio, and as always, our final question for our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. How much is the problem that the police defend the law and not justice is the problem the law is unjust not the police we know that laws are unjust and we also know that it's you know entirely ethical to break laws that are unjust it, you know people do it all the time we know that people who are starving uh, there there's nothing wrong with them stealing bread for their family um and of course so of course the law ultimately in the long run is a barrier but we need to be absolutely clear about the fact that the police do not simply uphold the law they break it systematically they transform it they change it they are lobbying right now as we speak in your state to change the law to write new laws, new laws that expand police power and that expand the world of police. In other words, that make it impossible for us to hold them accountable. That make it impossible for us to even balance city budgets often because they've demanded so much of the public coffers um, and they've written into the law that you can't cut those out. So at the same time that the law is certainly a problem, any revolution is illegal. Any revolution is in the contravention of the law. Um, but what we're talking about is breaking down and abolishing a force that actively transforms the law as it transforms the world. And we're trying to build a different kind of world than that. Gio, I cannot thank you enough for being back on our show. You know I'm going to annoy you in the future to have you back on the show. This has been a fantastic conversation. Everybody should check out your book, A World Without Police. It really is some very stunning work. Thank you so much for being back on our show. No, thanks so much, Chuck. It's great to be on. All right. Great to hear your voice, too, sir. I'll bug you again. Please do. All right. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. If what you just heard from Gio Maher on police abolition, that made you angry, sad, gave you anxiety, was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have held, or made you feel more educated or realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. Thanks to Nathan in Decorah, Iowa, who got a trucking industry professional cap this is from This Is Hell. Carlo in Syracuse, New York, who requested the This Is Hell enamel camping mug, as well as a guide to the 21st century flash drive. Thanks to Sheldon of 
Cortez, Colorado, who got three, count them three, this is how, t-shirts. And thanks, Sheldon. And special thanks to Christina here in Chicago for your very, very generous support. It is truly appreciated. Thanks, Nathan, Carlo, Sheldon, and Christina. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is what's Chuck's password? What's Chuck's password? Such a bad idea. Yeah, it's bad OPSEC. Yeah. <laughs> um, Chris L says one, two, three, four, five. It's a Spaceballs reference. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, God, I saw two minutes of that movie this weekend. Uh, horrible. Really? Absolutely. It's you been, like it? I, since I was a kid, but I, I loved it as a kid. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you, man. Watch it again. All right. <laughs> um, Gregory K., uh, Henry Kissinger's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy T. Password. Nice. That is actually the password I wanted my computer. <laughs> I know. I know. We we're not. We don't have very complicated passwords. No. Um, Egon S. is a very visual one. <laughs> um, solidarity solidarity forever with all the vowels replaced by numbers. No. Very clever. Very yeah. clever. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> follow follow S. Everybody five stupid. <laughs> Jack W. Drink and think. Garrett S. Adrenochrome underscore lover 420. <laughs> so what? I got a taste for adrenochrome. <laughs> um, Dan O. Hellrage 420 exclamation point. Steve C. Formula One. <laughs> Sarah. Uh, Sarah Mertz. Um, <laughs> Yikes. Your dead pet's name and your first home address. Same as the rest of us. <laughs> nice. Uh, Laddie O. Uh, exclamation point. Royal Crown 69. <laughs> and the last one for today. Spencer N. 2251 West Demon on my butt. <laughs> you can leave your answer to this week's question from Mel at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer. By the end of Wednesday's show, when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, who now delivers the Moment of Truth on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Chicago time. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History, in Rotten History, August 23rd, 1927, 94 years ago today, two Italian immigrants named Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were electrocuted in the state of Massachusetts for allegedly having pulled an armed robbery at a shoe factory, which is a weird place to have an armed robbery. The men had been arrested when they showed up in a garage to claim a car that police had linked to the crime. Sacco and Vanzetti were political activists, self-proclaimed anarchists in a time when the term anarchism was widely misunderstood, as it is still today. And for those of you who did not hear our interview with uh, Ruth Kinna, author of The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism on Election Day 2020, because there's nothing I enjoy more than talking about anarchism on Election Day. By definition, anarchism is nothing more than challenging the status quo to realize egalitarian principles and foster cooperative, non-dominating behaviors. That's all it is. It's not chaos. That's what it is. Ever since the Haymarket incident and the assassinations of Italy's King Umberto and U.S. President McKinley, anarchism had been unfairly associated with violence and chaos in the American public mind. So so why when police kill do they get to claim the cop was a rotten apple and not indicative of a systemic problem? But when an anarchist kills, the problem must be anarchism. 
It only made matters worse that Sacco and Vanzetti were recent immigrants from Italy in a time of widespread anti-Italian prejudice. USA, USA. But neither man had a criminal record or a history of violence. Witnesses for the prosecution had repeatedly changed their stories. Forensics evidence was shown to have been manipulated and no sign of the stolen money had been found. Not only that, but in the seven years since Sacco and Vanzetti's arrest, another man had confessed to involvement in the crime with a well-known criminal gang. Harvard Law professor Felix Frankfurter, a future U.S. Supreme Court justice, had published a long and widely read article in the Atlantic Monthly explaining why Sacco and Vanzetti should be acquitted. But when the Massachusetts court refused to overturn the verdict, suspicion grew that the men were being railroaded due to their ethnicity and political views. The days leading to their execution saw large-scale protests in cities around the world. Appeals for clemency came from newspapers and from international celebrities like Albert Einstein, George Bernard Shaw, and H.G. Wells. But on the scheduled day, Sacco and Vanzetti both died in the electric chair. Not until 50 years later, in 1977, would Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis officially proclaim their execution to have been unjustified. Meanwhile, capitalism continues to kill on a daily basis, and capitalists are allowed to walk free. In Rotten History, August 26, 1919, 102 years ago this Thursday, during a strike by Pennsylvania coal miners against the Allegheny Coal and Coke Company, the union organizer Fanny Salins was murdered in a confrontation with company guards. See? I told you capitalism kills. And man, coal mines just show up all the time in Rotten History. Some years earlier in St. Louis, where Salins worked in a clothing factory, she had helped organize a local of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. Upon learning of her success there, the United Mine Workers had recruited her to organize coal miners in West Virginia, where she was arrested several times and served a jail sentence because fighting against poverty, inequality, and the cruelty of capitalism now that's a crime. From there, Sellens had moved on to Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, where striking miners got into a fight with company guards. Accounts of the incident differ in detail, but apparently she encountered a group of sheriff's deputies who had just shot a miner named Joseph Starleski and were in the process of beating him to death. Sellens pleaded with the deputies to stop, and one of them responded by turning around and clubbing her on the head. When Sellens got up and tried to run away, another deputy yelled, quote, kill that bitch. They caught up with Sellens again, knocked her down, and put two bullets in her head. A month later, the coroner's jury would rule it justifiable homicide because under capitalism, there is no justice. The official verdict included praise for the deputies and ended with the statement, quote, we also criticize and deplore the action of aliens or agitators who instill anarchy and Bolshevism doctrines in the minds of un-Americans and uneducated aliens, unquote revealing the American brand of justice as racist and undemocratic. Four years later, ten deputies would be charged with having murdered Sellens, but one deputy never, but not one deputy ever showed up in court, and none were convicted. That's incredibly rotten history. And Jess, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com? Tomorrow's show, we'll be speaking with uh, Martine Van Baylor. On our article, the Taliban leadership converges on Kabul as remnants of the Republican uh, repos- re- the Republic reposition themselves for the Afghanistan Analyst Network. Yeah, you got to check out afghan-analyst.org. It is really one of the best places to get information on what is taking place in Kabul and throughout Afghanistan right now. What about Wednesday's show? 
Wednesday, we have historian Edward Watts on his new book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea and a Moment of Truth from, De- from Jeff Dorchin. Yep, Jeff is going to be returning with a new moment of truth this Friday or this Wednesday at 11 a.m. Earlier, I mentioned how Derek was upset about me basing, or just kind of dissing his hometown of Lansing, Illinois. But he also said he enjoyed our recent conversation about palm oil with Jocelyn C. Zuckerman, author of Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. But we got a dissenting opinion on that interview from Tara, who writes... At two, Chuck, which is the best subject line. I gleefully clicked a new show about palm oil, and I was, and I thought I was listening to Democracy Now! or NPR. The horror! The screeching insistence on getting a vaccine, despite the irony that this insistence comes from someone who had been fa- failed by a vaccine, is so depressingly disappointing. I do not think you should have read that letter. I'll explain which letter Tara is referring to later. Your guest is not a virologist, epidemiologist, pharmacist, medical doctor. There's a lack of credibility. Her citations for case and infection statistics is out of the LA Times and all the other major outlets. Since when do we use these sources to bolster our positions? They lie about WMD, but not about vaccine efficacy? Maybe not. So I'm fine with the lack of critical thinking and alternative medical and scientific explanations for what is happening, but please do not regurgitate via an otherwise interesting guest what I can hear listening to Amy Goodman, Nina Totenberg, or the BBC. Keep it palm oil, Haiti, fascism, and the other good and fun stuff you dish out so well. Tara. So I, I'm kind of confused by this because I think Tara is talking about Jocelyn's references to taking the vaccine. We had her on to talk about palm oil. I didn't want to get distracted by an entire conversation about vaccines. But maybe the letter Tara is referring to was from past guest sociologist Caitlin Shearing, who had been on the show to discuss the fight for water sovereignty in Brazil. And I read that letter on air. In that letter, Caitlin described how despite being fully vaccinated, she got COVID and it was awful despite getting both shots. Her concern was for those who did not even have that protection. And evidence shows that symptoms are not as severe if you do get the virus when you are fully uh, vaccinated. After reading that letter, I said, quote, this is not me telling you to get vaccinated, but sociologist Caitlin Shearing The vaccine has only received emergency authorization, so it has not been as thoroughly vetted as pharmaceuticals usually are before being authorized for use by the FDA. I am fully vaccinated, but I also understand hesitancy because of the U.S. government's sordid history of using humans as guinea pigs for its science experiments and its complicity with the pharmaceutical industry more generally. However, I have not had COVID-19 yet. I thought it, I did and got tested, but I did not. As she has far more experience with COVID, personally, I'd take Caitlin's advice, which I said anticipating exactly this kind of response from Tara. And let me add, with Moderna's vaccine being linked to a heart condition, hesitancy would seem well-founded. But with the FDA possibly authorizing the Pfizer vaccine, by the way, both were created by the National Institutes of Health and not by these corporations, maybe hesitancy when it comes to the so-called Pfizer vaccine will no longer be as warranted. However, Tara... I'm glad that, like Derek, you enjoyed our conversation on palm oil. So, like I was saying earlier, I tried. I tried really, really hard to buy weed legally for the first time in my life. And I failed miserably. On my way to my very first weed dispensary purchase, this one in Michigan where recreational marijuana is legal, 
I told my girlfriend that I felt slightly nervous. Like that nervous feeling I always have before making a drug deal, except this was going to be completely legal. She agreed that despite us not about to break any law, she also felt like we were about to commit a crime. So we pulled up to the weed store, which I still cannot believe is a thing, and parked in the ample parking lot right out front, which is right on a relatively busy road around the time the road is at its busiest and just a couple miles away from the cop shop. There were two pickup trucks already parked in the parking lot, so we figured there wasn't much of a line. I had already looked up the dispensary's menu online, so I knew what I was going to purchase, how much, and the cost, and with little to no line, we thought we'd be in and out quickly with my legal weed in hand. Guess again. We entered. We were asked if we were buying medicinal or recreational. I told the receptionist recreational. She guided us past a large room with big windows where you could clearly see the weed for sale in the group from one of the pickups shopping in the medicinal area. We went down the hallway a little bit farther and approached the recreational area, and through the windows I could see the store where I thought I would soon be buying weed legally for the first time in my life. It was glorious. I could see the wide variety of strains, the displays, and the other pickup trucks crew looking over the recreational inventory. I was then told that before entering, it was necessary to sign in, and I was led to yet another receptionist. From behind what looked like a bulletproof barrier, she pressed a button on a microphone, and through a crackling speaker, she asked to see my ID. That's when she told me that my ID is expired, and it expired six years ago in 2015. So I asked if my girlfriend could go in and purchase what I wanted. She explained how she could, but she needed to check her ID, So my girlfriend was told that her driver's license, the driver's license we just drove six hours to get up north, the driver's license we were planning to use on going back to Chicago, that driver's license was also expired. While all this was happening, another customer got in line behind us. As my girlfriend was explaining to the receptionist how she could not believe her license had expired as the state had not sent her any warnings, the other customer whispered to me, what do you want? I'll get it for you. Without making eye contact, I quickly whispered back my intended order. They repeated the order. I nodded yes and left. When we got back in the parking lot, got in the car, I told my girlfriend that what, what had happened and that I was actually going to get weed after all. By this time, my girlfriend could not have cared less. She was solely focused on her expired license. She doesn't smoke anyway, so me getting weed or not didn't really make much difference to her. What mattered was getting a ticket on the way home for driving on an expired license. I told her to move the car so we were not parked right in front, visible to the people working at the dispensary, and I nervously waited for several minutes in a nearly empty parking lot on a main drag by the cop shop to make an illegal drug deal in front of a legal weed store. The Good Samaritan exited the store, got in their pickup, and as they rolled down their window, I approached. They gave me my weed, showing me that they had kindly left the receipt in the bag, and I gave them the money. The legal customer, who was suddenly acting as an un, as an illegal dealer just a few feet outside the door of a legal weed store, told me, you know, they can probably see me, but I don't care. We then went our separate ways, and I had that feeling I have after every other illegal drug deal I've ever made, and that still means every drug deal I have ever made. I was nervous, relieved it was over, and wondering for the next several minutes if the whole thing was a setup and the cops were about to roll up on me. Despite weed now being legal where I live and where I visit, I still have yet to buy weed legally. Even though I really, really tried hard to buy legal weed legally, and to be honest, 
I would rather buy weed illegally. After all, my dealer's weed isn't taxed, so it doesn't fund the police state or the military-industrial complex or the fossil fuel industry. My illegal weed is cheaper. My dealer offers free delivery, and nobody, nobody, nobody ever asks for any kind of valid identification so I can be entered into a database. And get this. Turns out that due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the state of Illinois has a moratorium on all driver's license expiration dates until January 2022, which means we could have purchased weed legally if the state of Michigan database was aware that the state of Illinois has a moratorium on driver's licenses expiring. Well, it's kind of legal. It's still legal for you to legally buy weed for someone else. So even if my girlfriend had an up-to-date ID, buying it for me would still be a crime, which is stupid and frankly unjust. Thanks to Gio Maher. Thanks to our guest today, or our producer today, Jess Lipka. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is a toasted sandwich with your choice of co- cold cuts and cheese. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>